Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the oppressive heat wave that, according to the climate change radicals, will be the end of us all. Taxpayer-funded PBS and NPR are both hyping this journalist, Jeff Goodell, honking a book titled, The Heat Will Kill You First. That's what they're doing with our tax dollars. Oh, well. Our guest today on the Newsbusters podcast is the one and only Joe Concha, Fox News contributor on all things media and composer of articles for The Messenger. His latest book is Come On, Man, The Truth About Joe Biden's Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Presidency. And then uh, there's another one coming, right? Welcome, Joe. Great to see you. Uh, (laughs) And it is hot, yes, but air conditioning in here is about 66 degrees. My wife does not like that very much. She likes 74. But uh, this is my dojo uh, today since she's not here. So all good, my friend. We just got hooked up into having a Google Nest thermometer. The bad thing about that is it shuts you off unless you, especially if you're not in the house. It's like, really? Yeah, they call it rush hour from like five to seven. They'll turn your air off. So (laughs) you come home and go, wait a minute. Why is it 81 in here? Oh, well, it's got yeah, it takes a while for the house to cool down. So that's uh, that sounds like a net negative to have that particular device. Well, I guess we'll see when the electric bill comes in. Yeah, I yeah. guess. So you have a book coming called Not Your Daddy's Donkeys. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a hot trend. I know Mark Levin's got a book coming out on the Democrat Party. Uh, your latest piece at The Messenger is titled Media's Bias of Omission. Biden scandals get the silent treatment. It's just like the Obama scandals in which they couldn't admit there were any or they pretended Obama wearing a tan suit was somehow a scandal to us. Uh, <laughs> you know, we can start anywhere because there's there's a plethora of scandals, and they they really seem to hate them all. This is true. And and uh, look, Tim, it, it, he was called no drama Obama, right? In other words, ah, no controversies, nothing to see here, just a perfectly run presidency. Uh, and obviously, I, I think it was my friend Bernie Goldberg who, who wrote about the slobbering love affair mm-hmm. that the media had uh, with, with Barack Obama because you had many in journalism or journalism, remember that with Ezra Klein, you mm-hmm. know, a bunch of journalists getting together to support Obama, which that's activism, that's not journalism anymore. Uh, that, that's when I think really that the tide turned, that, that particular election going into 2008, where like a John McCain, who uh, is as moderate as it comes, was painted as old, which is kind of interesting because he was only in his 60s at the time, uh, and as this racist curmudgeon uh, that cannot be elected in any way, shape, or form. And obviously, we saw the way Sarah Palin was treated. So I I think when people say, well, when did it really, really shift as far as media bias? It's always been there. Don't Mm -hmm. get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But even if you look at the beginning of this century, in the 2000s, under George W. Bush, you still had more than 50%, according to Gallup, uh, trusting the media in this country. And now that, that number has completely plummeted. Yes, Obama started it, Trump finished it, and now we're at a point of no return where we saw what happened with CNN, right? I mean, that that is the most telling thing that has happened in journalism probably in a long, long time when you actually had management come in and say, we want to go back to doing reporting. We don't want to have these provocative opinions under the guise of reporting where our anchors and our correspondents end up making themselves a story. We want to go back to the old CNN of Bernard Shaw and the first Gulf War and just doing good, solid reporting that people can trust. And the people within that organization, particularly Jake Tapper, particularly Brian Stelter, even after he was fired, 
all orchestrated this coup from within saying, we do not accept both sides being presented fairly. We only want one way, that's our way, and that's to be the resistance to all things, not just Trump, but conservative in general. And now you see Tapper out there doing interviews, and boy, he likes to do interviews, uh, talking about how morale has never been higher at the network because they've gone back to being exactly what they were under Jeff Zucker, which is uh, all about uh, la resistance when it comes to taking down conservatives who are a threat to this democracy and must be stopped, which is not the way journalism works. Yeah, I mean, it... it uh Fox's Joe Wolfson had a piece about how Jake Tapper told, I guess, Kara Swisher in a podcast that uh, we're not going to shy away from Hunter Biden. And it's like, sorry, Jake, you've been shying away from Hunter Biden for many years now. Yeah. And Kara Swisher, by the way, I I love how she is seen as this larger than life figure, you know, at least at, at my old haunt of media. Anyway, it seems like every time she speaks, anytime Tapper speaks, they get a, a uh, a story, sometimes two in one day. And you remember who Kara Swisher was last year when Dasha Burns, NBC News, mm. yes, there are still some objective journalists out there, at least they try to be, when she reported that John Fetterman had trouble just having a basic back and forth conversation with her without the aid of XYZ, closed captioning and so on. Kara Swisher was the first to come out and, and go after Burns on social media and, and said, how dare you? Of course he's fine. How could you say something like that? You're being dishonest, and there were calls for Burns to be fired. She wasn't, thankfully. Uh, but it's just interesting, all these people just all talking to each other in this echo chamber and presenting themselves as these saviors of journalism when they're the ones who are actually destroying it at this point. So that's yeah. all i got to say about that, to quote Forrest Gump. We are, in a, we are in a situation now, as you suggest, where the scandals in the media aren't about ethics. They're not about... Uh, they're not about uh, you know being too biased. You you actually get in a scandal here for being too tough on a Democrat. <laughs> That's um, true. I mean, Michael Tomaski has this piece of the New Republic. I just found very amusing about how our political coverage is shaped by the political right, and it works almost entirely to their advantage. And obviously, we look at that and say, I don't know what world you're living in. But it seems like they are always working the refs. And let's face it, liberal media pays more attention, much more attention to the liberal opinion of them. That's how we get into a silo. They they don't pay a lot of attention to our critiques. And they should, right? Uh, Gavin Newsom, I think, recently admitted that he watches Fox News on a nightly basis because he wants to see what the other side is thinking, so so to speak. And that's smart on his part, because then when he does sit down with the Sean Hannity like he did a couple of weeks ago, maybe he already knows what sort of questions are going to be asked when some other folks never even would think about watching Fox because of the perception that they have of it based on the, the folks that cover media, so to speak, like like the freaks from The Daily Beast or uh, Oliver Darcy over at CNN. You know, they, they have a perception of Fox without actually watching Fox. Uh, so overall, you're right. You know, look what happened with Maureen Dowd this week. Like she wrote a very good piece, right, uh, where I believe it was titled uh, It's Seven Grandkids, Mr. President. And obviously that was in reference to the fact that Joe Biden only acknowledges six of his grandchildren, says he speaks to him every day. But the seventh one, well, he's not going to have any time for her, the four-year-old who was born out of wedlock, obviously, uh, Hunter Biden being the father. And and Maureen Dowd was eviscerated on social media for actually having the audacity of writing something that a lot of people, even Democrats, are talking about, which is, wait a minute, Joe Biden portrays himself as this doting grandfather, as a guy who says, 
It's family first, middle, and last. And now that whole portrayal is blown out of the water because he's told by his advisors, politically, this is bad. You're not going to want to acknowledge this kid in any way, shape, or form. And then Hunter Biden actually trying to fight the child payments, the child support payments, mm. the guy who made millions in Ukraine and China, the guy who made hundreds of thousands of dollars on paintings as if he's the next Da Vinci, even though he had no experience in painting whatsoever. It's a very bad look for the Bidens. Maureen Dowd called it out. And as you said, that really got the Biden administration and Democrats' attention because it was in the pages of the New York Times. And thou shall not write about the Bidens in any way, shape or form uh, when it comes to any scandal. Uh, and she got eviscerated for it online. So, yeah, we could go with example after example. But overall, the left only listens to the left. And when anybody goes against the grain, well, obviously they need to be eliminated. And it's just a, such a sad state of affairs that we're in at this point, Tim. Yeah, the I mean, the title is factual. You have seven grandchildren. Is yeah. it, It's a factual statement. Um, but I think it does underline sort of the shamelessness of the situation is if we we will and we can avoid reality because these media outlets will allow us to. And, yeah, the liberals on Twitter or wherever the liberals are going now in social media threads, uh, they demand that the that the media obey. I mean, you saw this this morning with Mika Brzezinski. She's. Oh. <laughs> chewing out Biden's staff for making him look old. I mean, the staff already keep him hidden away from the press on a regular basis. I mean, you just have to ask what next, you know, don't allow him to be sh filmed by anybody. That blew me away. I know it's Mika and I understand that Mika has now and Joe are, are almost you can't tell the difference between the two. Joe, you know, the conservative from Florida, congressman, Republican, uh, who switched parties recently, uh, not recently, but uh, after Trump was elected. So you expect crazy things to be said by Mika Brzezinski. You know, she'd be perfect on The View, quite frankly, if ABC and NBC could come to some sort of understanding. <laughs> uh, but when she says, yeah, I think his staff needs to own his age, I'm just going to be honest. I don't think they do a good job helping out the president. And I'm not talking about it like I'm just saying if you are managing a president's schedule and you're managing a president getting on stage and getting off stage and getting on planes and getting off planes, and yes, he's 80, you need to be there for him. And you're like, wait a minute, you need to be there for him? How? How do you prevent somebody from falling up the stairs of Air Force One? How do you prevent somebody from falling off their bike when he goes to greet reporters in Delaware? How do you prevent someone from basically walking across a stage and not having the wherewithal to see a sandbag that's on there? I mean, we all trip and fall once in a while. And if it happened once with Biden, I'd say, well, all right, it's a one-off. I mean, that he's a human being. It happens. But this happens so often. And the fact that still Still, she's saying it's the staff's fault that this is happening, that there's this perception of Joe Biden that he's old. The perception is real. You look at the schedule. He wouldn't even have dinner with NATO leaders last night right. because the staff says, oh, he worked four full days. Gee, I call that a good week. That means I have a three-day vacation, which are a three-day weekend. And because of that, he can't go to dinner. He can't go to dinner because he's too, I don't want to say old because my dad's two weeks younger than Joe Biden. Uh, and still works on a part-time basis as a consultant, or my uncle is a golf starter over at a local golf club. Great, do that. But when you're the president of the United States, guess what? That's a 24-7 job. And the fact that this president barely works, that's why he's running again, by the way. People are like, well, how's he going to do this? And well into his 80s. Look at his schedule. Yeah, he can handle it. It's, it's not hard. Uh, but I wonder in the end if, Tim, we're going to see Joe Biden reelected despite all this because so many Biden voters don't think he's a strong leader. They don't think he should run again. And yet when you ask them who you're going to vote for, 
they say all all Biden. A New York Times focus group just went through this. So I just wonder where we are at this point where we don't care about the state of the country as long as we vote against a party instead of for a candidate. I think that's kind of where we are in, in the emerging race is that a, a, a pretty large majority of the country don't want it to be Trump versus Biden. But I think that both parties are going to want to reflexively support the nominee of their party, kind of regardless of who it is. But I, that, I think, is what makes it an intriguing prospect that this no labels movement is going to try to get on the ballot. And obviously, the Democrats are the ones that are really, really afraid of that. Uh, they, that I, would hurt them, yeah. They, they, Yeah, they obviously perceive that as damaging to them in a three-way race. And so if the Democrats perceive it to be a damage to them, I guess we'll we'll also see somehow the news media come out against it. Joe Scarborough used to be a no-labels guy, as, as I recall. There used to be uh, chat about how he could run or be a vice president on a no-labels ticket. But uh, And I guess, what, they were looking at getting Joe Manchin? I mean, that would really drive the Democrats up a wall because they already hate that guy. Um, yeah. What, one of the things you wrote about in in Come On Man and something that we're doing on a regular basis, is, and that is, you know, Biden came in and said, oh, we're going to be so much nicer to the press than Trump. Um, but the reality is, you know, Trump provided a very hostile press with a lot of access and got no credit for it whatsoever. And here we have Biden, you know, giving almost no access to the press. These are people who voted for him, who like him. Uh, but you know, you know, Biden told an unnamed associate in mid-2021, according to two New York Times reporters, that Rupert Murdoch was the most dangerous man in the world. Uh, basically, I guess you can call Fox News fake news or something worse. You know, if you call CNN fake news, you hate democracy. But somehow, this is the thing that gets me is that the liberals think they're the ones that stand for democracy, but they can't really stand opposing media. What is amazing to me is, and, and you, you lay that out perfectly, we, we heard about when Trump came in how horrible he was going to be to the press because he says mean things about them, or because he stands up for himself and says, hey, that, that report is fake, like uh, Russian bounties on U.S. troops. That's fake news, Russian collusion with, with, with my... Uh, campaign. That's fake. You know, when when the dossier was released by Ben Smith uh, over at BuzzFeed, he called it a garbage document. And, and everybody in the press knew that it was because almost every other news organization had rejected it. But Smith put it out there unverified, still says he would do that to this day. And what happens with Ben Smith? He gets promoted right <laughs> for, for the worst act of journalism we've seen in 30 years where he puts this garbage document out there to the point where it prompts the FBI having to tell Trump about the contents of it. It eventually leads to James Comey getting fired and it goes to the whole special counsel. That document and Ben Smith's decision to put it out there was the whole reason behind that. And then what happens? He gets a nice fat contract order from the New York Times to be their media reporter slash analyst. And then what happens from there? He creates semaphore where he gets tens of millions of dollars, including from Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, <laughs> to start this this publication that I don't know too many people, quite frankly, are reading. Uh, so yeah, the, the, everybody gets rewarded in these situations. So from Obama to Trump was actually an improvement if you're in the press, because to your point, all the access that he provided, all he gave more press conferences than any president in history, and he only did it in four years. Didn't have eight, he did it in four. Uh, all those gaggles outside of... Um, 
Marine One uh, in front of the White House, directly to him, not going through a, a, a press secretary who's only going to spin things as we see with Karine Jean-Pierre, actual access. In his final in his final year in the presidency, in 2020, he gave 35 solo press conferences. You know how many Joe Biden's given over the last eight months? One. And that was in Japan. So you had foreign press there. So it wasn't a true press conference. So you got to go all the way back to November of 2022, when Joe Biden actually did a press conference at the White House solo. And yet the press continues to support him and protect him and when they didn't realize how good they had it with Trump. One thing I found funny about my book, Tim, was that when I wrote it, I thought, well, boy, a lot of people are probably also writing books about presidencies. I mean, that, that happened under Trump. We saw hundreds, probably. I mean, Jonathan Carl's up to his third already. Yeah. Right? Maggie Haberman's on CNN and only talks about the past president instead of the current one. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, boy, I'm going to run into a lot of competition. I haven't found too many other books about Joe Biden that have been written uh, yet we still see books about Trump being written. And that's the whole focus now at this point, all Trump, no Biden, and therefore Biden gets away with not being scrutinized the way he should, not just on his age, like put the age aside, have a performance when it comes to wages in this country, not keeping up with inflation, the border still being wide open, education, test scores at a 30 year low, and obviously crime in major cities driving exoduses out of everywhere from San Francisco to New York. That's what I would hope the, 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 the next election will be based on a contrast between, say, hey, how's Florida running or how's Tennessee running compared to California, Illinois or New York? Which America do you want? And instead, it's going to be about, to your point, an inevitable rematch between Donald Trump and the only focus is going to be on his legal problems and Joe Biden, where the only focus is on his age. And, and that's that's. That's a shame that, that that's that's going to probably be the choice, but it's a long way away and who knows what's going to happen. But I, I can't see too many other scenarios emerging right now. I think it is amazing that we have had almost no, there's certainly no Biden tell-alls. There's never any appetite for a, a, a an aide to Biden or even an, a, a guy named Anonymous to do an expose right. of Biden. Uh, we've had this, uh, Ben Schreckinger did a book early in 21 from Politico uh, on the Biden family, which could have been something. He, I don't know if he got interviewed anywhere in the mainstream you know, TV. Chris Whipple then did a book, but that was a pro-Biden book. He yeah. did get on PBS. He did do a thing with uh, Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. But yeah, there... There's no incentive, just like there were really no Clinton tell-alls from inside the Clinton administration. You know, Robert Reich wrote a memoir or something. But, I mean, again, most of those are going to end up being mostly positive. And they're not going to be, ooh, saucy gossip about who said what to whom. Bob Woodward, what, he's had three or four Trump books. He doesn't have a Biden book. That's true. That's true. He's he's written about every president, too. So you can't well, say, well, he just writes bad stuff about Republicans. I mean, he, he a fairly did, scathing book about Barack Obama. He, well, but yeah, they're like the price of politics and he focuses on the budget. You know what I mean? It's not the same kind of a book where it's right. like he's not going to do a, a book length treatment of what happened in Benghazi because that's just too Fox Newsy. Um, yeah, he did books, I think, two in the Obama years. He, I think he did one or two under Clinton, but it was always like he wrote a book under Clinton called Shadow, and it was partially about Clinton and then a whole bunch about other presidents. It's, obviously, he knows his audience 
in yeah. the media and in the book buying public is Democrats. That's why they, I guess he was interviewed on Airy Melber last night and Melber was like, Watergate icon, you know? Oh, still living off that. that. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. I, I just always compared Woodward and Bernstein to Simon and Garfunkel, right? And obviously Bernstein's Garfunkel and you never want yes. to be Garfunkel. But even Simon has been I, I found another book, by the way, that Woodward wrote under Bill Clinton, uh, 1997, The Choice, How Bill Clinton Won. Yes, <laughs> which is that's half about point. Dole losing. Yeah, but basically that, that, that's it. So, all right, that's where's the Biden book from Bob Woodward? I mean, I don't see any announcements around it. Oh, this yeah. may be worthy of a column, Tim. I may have to write this before you do because I think we stumbled upon something. Well, here. it's you know, it is you know, I, I if I remember correctly, one of the more interesting sort of anti-Clinton, not a book, but a little chunk of a book was written by a guy named Andrew Cuomo. That was the closest thing to a Bill Clinton tell-all. I couldn't even tell you. It was in the second term. I can't remember what the name of the book was. And it was just, I don't know if it was an, a foreword to somebody else or a chapter. It wasn't a whole book. But, I mean, you, yeah, we all remember that all of the anti-Clinton books were like Regnery, you know, right-wing publishers. Um, and that's that's just the pattern. And, yeah, I think it's natural that the anti-Biden books, if they're going to be written, are going to be Written by those Fox News contributors. <laughs> right. And it ended up being a bestseller. Like, I've never written anything, like, longer than, like, 1,200 words for a column. So then when the Simon and – I'm sorry, when um, the HarperCollins folks are like, okay, we'll need 65,000 words in three months, I'm like, I, I, I'm not going to be able to do this. And it, it somehow wrote itself. After a while, it just – you just go chapter to chapter, and that that's fine. Uh, and, and it ended up actually being a bestseller on every list except for one. Interestingly enough, yeah. uh, it went to number seven Wall Street Journal. It was at number one uh, for at least a day or two on Amazon. I think for the week it finished at eight. Uh, USA Today, Publishers Weekly made all those lists because it's like a baseball score. They were basing it on sales. The New York Times, however, did not have me on their list. And the funny thing is, HarperCollins had two books on the New York Times bestseller list that week when mine came out. So they saw the numbers and my publisher says, yeah, you outsold those books combined and they still wouldn't put you on. So then I went to my contact in the New York Times because I used to be, I was on the reporting side for the Hill before I went to the opinion side once I signed with Fox because you can't report mm -hmm. on somebody that's paying you. You know, I mean, Brian Stelter and Oliver Darcy can say that, oh, I, we cover our network fairly. No, you don't. All right, so just, just go to an opinion side and stop pretending you're reporters. And then, now the point is though that uh, when I went to the opinion side, what was I trying to say here? Uh <laughs> well, just basically that you were told that you outsold the other two books from Harper Collins and Right. So I used to have to get like comment from I have every contact at every PR person uh at every publication and channel uh in in, in the country. So I went to him and I'm I'm not saying I'm friendly with him, but we had a cordial relationship at right. least because whenever I asked for comment, he would get back to me and it was never like name calling or anything. And I said, So what's the deal? And he goes, Well, we have a different methodology than those other places. I said, Yeah, but it's it's a final number, right? And and they said, Well, no, you know, we we base it on independent book store sales. And it's like, who goes to a bookstore anymore? You go to Amazon right. and you buy the thing. Right. And then I, I, Molly Hemingway actually enlightened me to uh, a case in 1983. It was the guy who wrote 
The Exorcist. And he had a clause in his contract that said if he made the New York Times bestseller list, then he got a bonus. And he went to number one on all these other lists, except for the New York Times, wouldn't put him on. And he actually sued. And they had to admit in open court that, yes, it's more of an editorial process than it is about numbers. So at least uh, I had some solace around that. But that just goes to show you again that places like the New York Times, Tim, they haven't endorsed a Republican presidential candidate since 1956. And that means they endorsed Mondale over Reagan, just, you know, throwing that out there. And the Washington Post has never endorsed a Republican presidential candidate, yet they're seen as the top two newspapers in the country. You got to think like once they would have done it, but no, that's where we are. And the other thing, as long as we're harping in the New York Times book review, folks, they also yes. don't want to review your book. So yes, Mark Levin can have a number one book that the New York Times has to acknowledge as the number one book because it's massive, they still won't review the book. Uh, a, a couple of Levin books ago, I said, the New York Times did find space for a photo book by Kim Kardashian, oh. <laughs> but, but couldn't review Mark Levin's book, even to trash it. Uh, wow. And you see what Target did? They they recently said they weren't selling Mark Levin's book because it's dangerous to democracy or something like that, which is hilarious on so many levels. And then he went off on them and they, they reversed course. So yeah, that it's ends good up, to see that. Yeah, go ahead. It ends up being good pre-book publicity. Oh, huge, right? That's probably the best thing that could have happened to him. So <laughs> I, I, I pray that Target says they're not going to sell my book. Then I'll, I'll, I'll lose my stuff and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens from there. But yeah, the book comes out in... Um, late September, and not your daddy's donkeys. And I just wrote a chapter yesterday about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and how, boy, this guy doesn't trust the government very much because that's how Democrats used to be. And boy, he's anti-war because that's how Democrats used to be. And you see the way he's getting eviscerated by all these outlets saying that he's a danger to democracy because he actually had the audacity to write a book questioning whether the COVID, that, that, that coronavirus came from a lab that studies coronaviruses in a place called Wuhan, where it actually originated. And he was called a conspiracy theorist around not just that, but saying that, hey, maybe vaccines have side effects that we don't fully know about yet. And it's never been definitively proven one, one way or another. But the way Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is being treated, treated compared to the way you see his brother was, I'm sorry, his father was treated in 1968 when he ran for president, just night and day. So uh, the, the book is writing itself. Uh, Bill Clinton makes Donald Trump look like a wallflower. Uh, when he was president, when it came to immigration and deportation, same with Barack Obama, uh, for that matter. Jimmy Carter was a pro-life Democrat, which can you imagine that happening mm. now? Impossible. Or Bill Clinton supporting uh, and actually working with a guy named Newt Gingrich to pass that, where we actually had budget surpluses. Wow, who knew? Uh, it, it's it's remarkable where this party has gone, particularly like just in the last five or six years, Tim. And the media aspect around that is very clear. I mean, you see CNN, right? In 2020, they said, all right, we're going to do town halls with all the Democratic candidates. And you're like, all right, well, you know, that, that, that sounds about normal. But it could only be on one topic. The climate crisis is what they called it. So if you're a Democratic candidate, you were forced for an hour to get up there on national television and only talk about one topic. One, because they deemed it to be the most important until you look at Gallup and it's down the list at like 12 or 13 in terms of voter priority. So that's that's the thing. The media is driving this party way to the left because that's the only way you survive interviews on CNN, MSNBC and on social media. And that, that can't be a good thing because the Democratic Party used to have some good aspects to it. And now I can't find one, quite frankly. I think it's a sign of their feeling of desperation about Biden at this point that, yeah, I don't. You know, none of us expect that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is going to end up on 60 Minutes. 
Um, you know, I don't know that he's been interviewed anywhere on ABC, CBS, or NBC. I mean, they they have treated him as just a massive fount of misinformation. And and look, I'm anti-Kennedy enough that it's like I remember who this guy was when he was the climate crisis candidate. I think he still is. But it's that, as you suggest, it's the whole anti-vaccination and not just the COVID vaccine, but pretty much all vaccines, uh, you know, they they don't even want to give him the time of day. They don't want to even question him negatively. Yeah, they're treating him nothing like they treated Ted Kennedy running against Carter, you know, in 1979, 1980. So uh, that will be an intriguing storyline. Obviously, none of them expect there to be any Democrat debates. Which is remarkable because the Democratic National Committee has already said, nope. Joe Biden will not debate any of his opponents. It's done. That's it. Like they declare this all these months before you would actually hold debates. And I'm thinking if Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who, again, holds no public office, never held public office, can get to 20 percent in polling like that. And then Marianne Williamson, right, who is certifiably crazy. I mean, (laughs) you hear some of the things she says and she's at 10 percent. What if somebody like a Gavin Newsom jumped in or Joe Manchin? Then what are we looking at here? I mean, I I can't see Joe Biden's support being to the point where you say, nope, he doesn't have to debate in any way, shape or form. But that's what we're seeing. And just to be fair, by the way, Donald Trump says, well, I'm not going to debate either because I have this massive lead. And why should I expose myself to to the attacks from all these opponents? Well, I'm sorry, it's, it's not a coronation. It's a nomination. And he should be on that debate stage as well, and he's threatening not to. I, I'm, I'm writing a column now that says, I don't think in the end, Donald Trump, who is a street fighter, is gonna turn down a street fight with 20 million people watching, where he could posterize Ron DeSantis and anybody else who comes at him. Uh, he loves the spotlight too much. He loves this sort of back and forth jousting. I, I would think he's gonna show up for, for the debates, but he canceled on two uh, during the 2020 campaign. I'm sorry, 2016, he canceled on one. Uh, And then in 2020, the second presidential debate, they wanted to do virtual because Trump tested positive for COVID. uh, And he said, I'm not doing it. And you're like, wait a minute, dude, you're down in the polls. You want to do this debate. So I I, I'm flipping a coin right now and I think he'll do it. But if he doesn't, boy, we're going to miss out on some good entertainment, Tim. That I do know. He certainly knows that if he goes into a debate stage with six or seven Republicans, everybody is focusing on him. He knows that. It's the it's the logical, natural thing. But on the other hand, yes, you would say knowing Donald Trump, you know, just the idea that you're a chicken, you're afraid of Chris Christie, um, that's going to grate. So, yeah, that's what you, where you would think he's not really going to skip them all. You know, he he may skip the first one and see how it how it rebounds. Um, but yes, I mean, you can imagine he would skip them all. Uh, now we were, we did the MRC cruise, ran around uh, yes. Croatia and Italy, and I think what we got from our passengers, our uh, the people who came to our little strategy sessions, is there's just a sort of a general sense of malaise, if we can use that term. Uh, and mm. you know, I, and I think it probably represents conservatives across the country. People are looking for. Signs of hope. I had cruisers at my table debating whether America, as we know it, will be toast in five years or ten. And so, you you wow. know, you found yourself trying to to give them a sense that it isn't all over. I mean, I suppose it's not helped by Trump basically saying, "Either I win this election or it's the last election." Yeah, that's true. And and I felt the same way when you when you got feedback from folks. It, it wasn't. 
this optimistic vibe, we'll put it that way. And there's uh, several reasons for that, right? I mean, uh, some folks believe that uh, the 2020 election uh, was stolen. Uh, some folks believe that Republicans don't have any backbone when it comes to fighting the way Democrats fight. And I think even at one point, and it may have been on, on a panel with you, Tim, where I said, you know, the, the Senate is ripe for the plucking, right? Because you have a seat open in, in or, or up for grabs in Montana, which is a very deep red state. West Virginia, Jim Justice should wax the floor with Joe Manchin based on the fact that he's at nearly 70% approval as governor and Manchin has plummeted ever since supporting the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and then there's also a race in Ohio, which has become a very reliable red state. And all you have to do is flip two seats and you have the Senate. And then one gentleman from the audience uh, said, yeah, but then Mitch McConnell's still running things, and I don't believe that's going to change anything. You're like, oh, okay, yeah. So it's not a matter of Republicans win and conservatives are happy. There is a disconnect within the party uh, between the establishment, obviously, and, and those who are more in the Trump populist wing. Uh, I, I think elections solve everything. I think in the end, if Donald Trump is the nominee, and it certainly looks like that would be the case, then it comes down to flipping 10,000, 12,000, 20,000 votes in three states, Georgia, Arizona, which used to be reliably red, and Wisconsin, which Trump won in 2016. And then there's also Pennsylvania, Michigan. So you win a couple states, everything changes. Then suddenly you have the presidency, the Senate, and the House again, which Donald Trump had to start his presidency. People almost forget that. Uh, and he may have squandered uh, some opportunities there. Uh, so I guess the elections solve everything. But then with a lot of people don't trust the elections. And that's the malaise that we're seeing, I guess, this hopelessness that it's suddenly not up to the people anymore, but it's up to other forces that we can't even quite identify exactly. We call it the deep state, but who is it? And there's never any accountability if we do think we found somebody who's who's uh, manipulating the system. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a tough go right now uh, if you're a conservative because there is no shining city on the hill Reagan coming right now. It's, it's, it's Trump and some feel that he can't win because of his baggage and others feel that he's going to get cheated. Either way, that's where the malaise comes from, I think. Anyway, that's my theory. Yeah, I mean, you do get differing opinions from people on Trump. And um, obviously, as you suggest, you know, Trump starts with having both houses of Congress and it just really underlines for you why it was so important for the media to harp on Russiagate and the scandals and to try to you know, immediately trying to make sure that the Democrats would take back one or both houses in the midterms. I mean, so, yes, this is one of the reasons people people don't trust the media, because they are always trying to set the stage for Democrats to win. Certainly the entire way that they promoted the heck out of the January 6th committee, um, I think we can conclude was had to be part of why the midterms were as successful for the Democrats as they were. Um, what I was telling people at my dinner tables, we would have dinner with the guests and they would rotate around to us one after the other. But I, the point I would try to make to them about the Republicans is you have to understand that you're probably getting your opinion on how the Republicans are doing by watching the media. And they're not yeah. going to give you a rosy picture. And even Fox isn't going to say, well, and I know they're running some Christopher Ray live today, but they weren't they're not going to run James Comer hearings for eight hours a day. You know, they got. They got money to make. So you're not always going to see things that the Republicans are doing that'll make you happy. Uh, you have to realize you're going to have to get that opinion from more than just the media. And thankfully, at least we have more options, right? It used to be when I was growing up in, in New York here, you had channels 2, 4, 7, 11, and 13. So that was CBS, NBC, ABC, PBS, 
and then like the local channel 11 that played a lot of Woody Woodpecker and Inspector <laughs> Gadget from what I remember. Uh, so, but now at least you go online and there are places like the Daily Wire or Newsbusters or obviously Fox. Uh, you, you go down the line, there's just so many more options out there. And when you do see something happen in media that you know is profoundly false, it's almost like you have these, Mark Levin described it as the, the Paul Revere's of the internet. They'll go on social media and they will shame in many cases, uh, folks that may be saying something that's profoundly wrong or ridiculous, uh, and that maybe levels the playing field a little bit. All, all I remember is in 2016, the, the Hill did an analysis of 59 presidential endorsements by major newspapers, and 57 of them went to Hillary Clinton. So you had in 57 major cities, basically, people... The, the, the newspapers that they read, whether it be online or are still delivered to them, saying this is who you should vote for. This is why. This is why Donald Trump's dangerous. You should not vote for him. And he still won. So maybe the influence of media isn't remotely what it used to be uh, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even the 2000s, perhaps, because if nobody trusts the messenger, then you're not going to really listen to what they have to say. Yeah, this is kind of the ancient debate, and it's still going around. And some people are trying to say, you know, television doesn't matter like it like it used to and you could say well look the the three evening newscasts are getting like 18 million viewers and look at how many americans they there are but they're still the ones that set the table and you know this is why we try to do what we do at newsbusters i mean if we get into a point where tv news doesn't matter anymore maybe we'll go on and do something else but i think they are still the preeminent narrative manufacturers out there and, you know, we have the same problem in terms of people feeling hopeless because you're going to come to Newsbusters and you're going to hear all the crazy stuff Joy Reid saying or whatever and get demoralized. But hopefully you sometimes you're trying to tell them it's like, no, 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 you're supposed to be encouraged by how hilariously dumb that is. <laughs> That's the thing. I think we shouldn't get angry so much when you hear the joys, whether it be Reid, whether it be Behar, uh, the Sonny Hostins, uh, when they say utterly nuts, not so things uh, on, on their air and just laugh at them instead. I, mean, I think that's the best way to do it because once we start getting angry and then it looks like, oh boy, they're getting under our skin, uh, maybe that, that isn't as effective as, as a good old-fashioned twitchy-like uh, bashing. Twitchy, that's another great site, by the way, Tim. Go yeah, I mean, you're right that there's a lot of sites that, that people can go to and get, and I guess part of it is, yeah, you want to tell the people you just need a bigger diet of conservative media. And obviously, some of the people on our crews were, you know, older than we are and probably aren't on Twitter, you know, getting this junkies on our phones, getting all the latest wacky video clips. I mean, where are you seeing Biden failing? They're not showing it on ABC or NBC, but you, it's all over Twitter. So I guess there's there's hope there. They just have to hook up into it. Well, yeah. Joe. Think, and radio as well, right, Tim? I yeah, mean, that, well, of that course. Right. No, no liberals there, uh, but. Even well, with Rush passing, uh, you still see Clay and Buck doing very well uh, and, and obviously live in and, and Sean Hannity and, and so on. So there are places where conservatives do dominate certain mediums where millions of people are, are listening. So maybe it's more level than we, we realize. I don't know. Well, I have to I also have to always have to come back with you have a massive liberal news and talk outlet called National Public Radio. <laughs> uh, that is theirs. That's why they've never been able to build a liberal alternative in commercial talk, because NPR, when they saw Air America and these sorts of attempts come out, they were like, well, we've got to do our own talk shows and crush those people. 
Wow. Um, so All I know is that whenever I go to DC, every cab driver has NPR on. I, I, I'm like at a streak of like 124 for 124. It's just the oddest thing. I, I don't know if it's like mandatory in certain cab company. You know, uh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe they just say, all right, just put that on because it's non-controversial. And I'll be listening to it. I'm like, oh, my God, I'll get my earbuds on and just put on, you know, the Bill Simmons podcast or, or something or, or the Tim <laughs> Cram podcast. Yeah, I think what, that, I think that I think that, uh, yeah, liberals think it's utterly non-controversial. And the reason they think that is because there are no conservatives on there. <laughs> it's so calm because we're not putting anybody on we don't like. Um, and exactly. We, and we get our tax money. We pay for that. Well, thank you, Joe. We'll look forward to your book, Not Your Daddy's Donkeys, in September. We look forward to you. Uh, hopefully, we're all going to be on the MRC cruise again. Um, I was invited. I'm back. The, I got the email like two days ago. I'm back, baby, 2024. So, yeah, we're having a cruise after the election. And as Brent Bozell said, we're either going to all drink to success or drink it to failure. One way or the other. But we thank you for coming. And if you want to come uh, to learn what's going on in Media Bias, you come to Newsbusters once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening. <laughs>